Hello world, you're listening to the Kitchener-Waterloo Linux User Group audio podcast. KW Lug discusses topics related to free and open source software of all kinds. We meet on the first non-holiday Monday of each month in Kitchener, Ontario, Canada. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike license, so you can give it to others, remix it, or even sell it, provided you abide by the terms of the license and share alike the works that you remix and redistribute. For more information about KWLUG, visit kwlug.org. For more information about this podcast, visit kwlug.org slash podcasts. In this month's meeting, Jason Eckert discusses the Unix philosophy and how it has taken over the world. And Jason Paul shows us how to use development containers to create replicable built environments. Replicable. All right, so I'm just going to get my presentation up here. All right, can everyone uh, see that presentation? Give me a quick yes in the. Yes, yes, we can. Yeah, awesome, good. Okay, cool. So everyone's probably thinking at this point, why are we doing a Unix philosophy presentation in a Linux users group? Um, and the short answer is, well, um, Unix isn't just an operating system. It's actually today, it's considered both a philosophy first and foremost. And we'll see that in my presentation, but it's also a, a general group of operating systems. If it looks like Unix, it talks like Unix, it's Unix, right? It doesn't matter if it's Linux or if it's Mac OS or BSD. So it's, it's basically uh, anything that, you know, exists today that was kind of derived from the original Unix operating system, right? And so all the BSDs, Mac OS, which is based on Next Step Unix, and of course, Linux, which has got the largest market share. And for anyone learning Unix is probably the, you know, thing you should learn as a result, right? So there are a lot of schools, universities, and colleges that have a introduction to Unix course still, but it's not an introduction to Unix course. It's an introduction to Linux. <laughs> so, so that's that's my justification for using that. Now, before we get into um, the Unix philosophy part, let's talk a little bit about what Unix is, because I'm not going to assume that everyone here knows the entire history of Unix, and it's probably a good thing for us to kind of have some fun with, right? So, um, brief Unix background, guys. Um, Unix is basically uh, an operating system that was made by these two guys. Well, the one on the left, Ken Thompson, mainly in 1969, the Epoch, right? Um, and it was later rewritten in C by Dennis Ritchie on the right, invented C. And I guess I need to call yeah. Peter. Oh, hey, Tim, how's it going? And um, basically, I'm not, I'm not <laughs> yeah, but uh, essentially, uh, the problem was, is these two guys worked for Bell Labs at AT&T. And AT&T was a big monopoly at the time in, in the early 70s. And they didn't want to draw any heat, any more heat from the U.S. government. So they did not participate in the software market. So they couldn't really sell Unix. Um, so what they did is they sold the source code. And so everyone and their mother bought a copy of the source code from AT&T Bell Labs. Xenix is Microsoft's version of Unix, HPUX from HP, IBM's AIX, and so on and so forth, right? But they also gave away free copies. They gave a free copy out to the University of Mannheim in Germany. They did nothing with it. They gave a free copy to the University of Waterloo. They did nothing with it. They gave a free copy to the University of California at Berkeley, and they did something with it. They, they heavily modified it and improved it in weird and strange ways and called it Berkeley Software Distribution or BSD. 
And the first SonOS was based on BSD. Next step, which became macOS, was, was basically based on BSD and so on and so forth. So that's really, you know, the history of, of Unix. And because we have these BSD style Unixes from the 80s versus the AT&T style Unixes, there's actually two camps. And so every major release of AT&T's Unix was given system one, two, three, four, five. And so you were either in the system five Unix camp in the 80s or you're in the BSD Unix camp, right? And Linux, unfortunately, didn't belong in either camp. Linux was instead not derived from the AT&T source code. It was created from scratch as a free alternative Unix, right? From the Free Software Foundation, the new project. So Richard Stallman had this Free Software Foundation because he didn't like the fact that nothing was open source or free. Um, and he tried to create an entire operating system called GNU. GNU is not Unix, is what GNU stands for. And it didn't have a lot of good management or organization, so it never came to fruition. But a lot of utilities were developed um, from the GNU project. And so what Linus Torvalds did, he took his uh, monolithic kernel and he slapped on a bunch of GNU utilities and voila, we have a whole OS that is completely open source Unix. And then that kind of took off, right? So that's that's a little bit of the background um, that we've seen. If you want a full if you want like a full background, just Google Ultimate Unix Timeline and you'll see a blog post I did a little while ago that I, I had vetted on Hacker News so that, you know, I could let other people correct the few little inaccuracies before I, you know, I, I published it. And um, it's actually a pretty cool Unix timeline. So it's more encompassing. But really, the only surviving Unixes of any kind as far as operating systems go are really the BSDs, Mac OS and Linux. And Linux is pretty much number one. Mac OS is two. And the BSDs, well, I mean, Netflix and Meta use BSD heavily, as do a couple other key companies. But it's not, like, anywhere near the market share that Linux has in the, in the Unix world. Now, let's get into the Unix philosophy. So what is the Unix philosophy? That's Unix as an operating system, right? But what is this Unix philosophy? Well, you can't go to a, a conference now and not see at least one talk where in the title or in the presentation itself, someone doesn't bring up the Unix philosophy, whether it's KubeCon or maybe some of the vendor conferences like SUSECon or Red Hat Summit or like even EPBF Summit. I remember, you know, there was like two talks and <laughs> it related certain things with EPBF to the Unix philosophy. So it's everywhere. It's a common term, the Unix philosophy, right? Uh, or even Linux and Unix philosophy, which is kind of like what they talk about. So there is this Unix philosophy out there. And what does that mean? So that's the main purpose of this presentation. And if we were to summarize with one sentence, this is kind of how most people would summarize it today. They would use the word simplicity in some way, shape or form, right? So the Unix philosophy is the keep it simple, stupid principle, the KISS principle or simplicity. Um, and that's too simple unintended <laughs> to be honest with you if you want to if you want if you have a terminal open right now and you've got a black background you can run this curl command to get the you know the computing version of that same unix philosophy with a picture of dennis ritchie but you know that's if you have a terminal open right i don't know how many of you have a terminal open. now more specifically this philosophy was is not static and was not static it changed dramatically over time so it started as something that, you know, Ken Thompson kind of put out there in the early 70s. And then 
people kind of figured out, well, this is what Unix is all about. And then they added some things. They added, um, you know, as programmers started to use it, they realized the reason they liked to use Unix is because it was simple and they could, you know, do the things they wanted to do without a lot of work, right? It was programmer focused. It was portable. It could run on different architectures. Um, and then later on, Sun introduced networking to the Unix philosophy. So the network as a computer became a, a vital part of the Unix philosophy. And that kind of switched things up quite a bit and is still front and center with us today. And then, of course, as open source kind of rose to, to glamour in the 1990s, really became mainstream about that time. That's when, you know, you know, the collaborative development feature of the Unix philosophy kind of got added in. So the Unix philosophy is a changing thing, right? And let's take a look at how it's changed over the years, guys. So first version, the earliest version of the Unix philosophy was several years after Ken Thompson and Dennis Ritchie created Unix. And basically it had three points exactly spelled like this and in these words. So write programs that do one thing and do it well, right? Uh, write programs that work together and write programs that handle text streams because that's a universal interface. So basically you want to write small utilities that don't do too much. And if you need a utility to do more than that, you combine it with another small utility that's very good at what it does to make a larger one, right? And if you're going to communicate between those programs, use text. So that's the earliest stab at kind of like a, this is what Unix is about. This is what we want to do with Unix from Ken Thompson, the co-creator of Unix. But by 1980, they had a loyal following. <laughs> and uh, so they had these little kind of not AT&T related conferences. And, you know, Ken Thompson and Dennis Ritchie would show up at these. And at the one in 1980, they said, OK, here are some things about Unix that we would describe Unix as. So it's kind of like, a you know, not a philosophy, but really it is describing Unix. So it's kind of like Unix philosophy. So they mentioned things like a hierarchical file system with mountable and demountable volumes, right? Um, you know, everything is a file. We have interprocess IO. We have asynchronous stuff. We have, you know, users can select what shell they want, what development language they want to use. There was over 100 subsystems at the time by 1980, and they focused on portability. So Unix can run on, you know, anything, right? So what happened was is shortly after this, uh, someone that worked with Ken Thompson and Dennis Ritchie, Canadian, Brian Kernigan, um, formalized it. He actually took over and said, look, I'm going to write a proper Unix philosophy in the early 1980s. And this was the Unix philosophy in the early 1980s. Everything is a file, you know, <laughs> you know dev TTY zero for the first terminal, stuff like that, right? Um, we write small programs that do one thing really well, but he used the word modularity. And if you want to send something from one program to another program, which was, you know, released shortly before the 1980s, right? It wasn't a, an initial feature of Unix. Um, you could pipe that information from one program to another, right? And captive user interfaces were a big problem uh, on systems developed in the 60s and 70s. So they wanted to get away from that, make programs that would take arguments. So you didn't have to have a human being sitting there typing things in, right? So you could script it. So non-interactive and everything is stored as text. So this was, this was kind of like, uh, roughed in Unix philosophy from the original one in 1973. Now, simplicity was still one of the main reasons that people use Unix. And that's what people in the 80s really kind of associated Unix with. It was the number one kind of word that you would associate with the Unix philosophy. And it still is, right? Um, and David Tilbrook, which who was a computer science prof at U of T, 
has this great quote that you can read. And um, this kind of sums up how people looked at Unix, if you were to describe it with one term. And it was the simplification part of it, right? But the problem with, with that is it didn't really it didn't really encompass everything. It didn't encompass the stuff Brian Kernighan said in the previous slide. And in the early 80s, there was this company called Sun Microsystems that just became this unstoppable force in the Unix world. They wanted to sell Unix workstations and eventually servers, right? And they could do no wrong. I mean, they were like the Forrest Gump of the Unix workstation world. And everyone was kind of afraid of them because you didn't want to compete with Sun. And what Sun did is they added a dimension to the Unix philosophy. They added the network dimension, okay? Um, and this is where you hear that famous phrase, the network is a computer, which then became the dot and dot com, and then the internet is a server. These are the three slogans from Sun over the years, right? But when I worked for Sun in the early 1990s, um, I mean, you, you couldn't sit down at a Sun workstation and not see at least a dozen NFS mounts. Right. I mean, the whole idea behind um, making the network the computer is the idea that you have one you have stuff stored once. So things like documentation, do you need to store documentation on every workstation? No, you store it across the network on some file server and you access the NFS mount that connects to it if you need that documentation. If someone modifies the documentation, it's in a central place being modified centrally. So everyone doesn't need to download a new copy. Right. Uh, same thing for apps. Almost all the apps I ran, even in the early 1990s, were not on my local workstation. They didn't use up any space. The binaries were on an NFS mount somewhere across the network. Um, and user directories, too. Like, do you want to back up your workstation? Heck no. Put all your put all your files, all your development stuff on some, uh, on some uh, you know, file server across the network. Like, your entire home directory would be mounted, NFS mounted, right? And so, basically... If you, uh, you know, if your workstation pooches, well, it doesn't matter. Get another workstation, make your same manifest mounts. <laughs> Chances are you didn't even have to do that because we had yellow pages back then. So this was this. It wasn't just the network as a computer. It was use things properly. Don't store stuff everywhere. Leverage the network whenever possible. And this was not just NFS. This was in bred into every method of thinking when I worked at Sun, and. I thought it was just a sun thing for a while and maybe a university thing because University of Waterloo that I also worked at around that time, you know, did the same thing. Everything was, you know, spread across the network, network mounted. Unix admins were sticklers for making sure that this was beautiful and perfect. But later on, when I did a lot of corporate training for trials training centers, I, I went into dozens of corporations, you know, McKenzie Financial to Atomic Energy of Canada and their Unix admins were exact same way. I mean, everything was on the network. It was everything. There, there was at least a dozen NFS mounts everywhere. Right? So, so it was, it was pretty good. Uh, it was, it was definitely part of the Unix philosophy. And the other thing is, is, uh, you know, collaboration was important. So you can't collaborate unless you're working on something that's across the network. So collaboration software, even sharing files and having file locking mechanisms. These are things that some worked on heavily. Right. So that was the dimension that Sun added. And they added this uh, as right near the beginning, like all throughout the 80s, their focus was, hey, let's use the network. Right. Um, and it was a cool dimension. Now, I should mention that uh, <laughs> this is kind of like a side detour, you know, just a historical thing that um, 
because Sun was this big company that everyone was afraid of, what happened was is AT&T, they kind of partnered with Sun. Um, and in 1987, they freaked everyone out by saying, okay, the next version of Sun OS, because Sun OS 4 and earlier were based on BSD, the next version of Sun OS version 5 will be based on the AT&T camp of Unix, System 5 Unix. And everyone was like, no way, they're going to take over all the standards. They're basically going to crush everyone because they're Sun. Um, and so all their competitors that were using BSD style Unixes formed this OSF foundation, <laughs> you know, form a committee. That's how you combat stuff. And then Sun and AT&T decided, well, we can form a committee too. So they made one called Unix International. And this was called the Unix Wars. It was pretty childish, pretty useless, pretty short-lived. But what happened during these Unix Wars is Linux came about. And it definitely helped Linux. So these Unix Wars put pressure on, hey, we need an open source Unix so we can get away from these two camps. And the GNU project was really slow, wasn't getting anywhere. It was pretty evident that uh, the Free Software Foundation just didn't know how to manage it. And so what happened was, is Linus Torvalds put together an entire operating system with mostly GNU utilities and his kernel, and we suddenly had an open source Unix. And at the same time, um, 386 BSD came out. So it's BSD Unix, which was typically distributed for free, right, for the PC. And there were PCs everywhere, and PCs were, like, exploding. And so AT&T was like, no, 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 you can't get this out for free. They smelt money, right? So they took them to, to uh, court, and, B and uh, Berkeley won, uh, hands down. In fact, it solidified the fact that, you know, BSD could be free forever, Right. So right after that legal battle, 386 BSD became FreeBSD and NetBSD. And then later on, OpenBSD kind of forked from NetBSD. Right. So, um, yeah, we suddenly had two open source Unixes. We had Linux, <laughs> open source Unix, and we had FreeBSD and NetBSD, both open source Unixes. So people in the early 90s were thinking, oh, geez, uh, the future of Unix is like open source Unix. Uh, and Linux was gaining a lot of traction, a lot more traction than BSD. So people were going, oh, maybe Linux is Unix's future, right? That's the open source Unix we're going to be using. So that's a kind of like an important historical tidbit that I just stuck in there because it was perfectly timed. But so far, we've seen that uh, Ken Thompson in 1973 had the original Unix philosophy. It was revised heavily by Brian Kernighan, early 80s. And then Sun added the network dimension, right? Very important dimension. But what happened right after Linux and this open source FreeBSD, NetBSD stuff came out is this was the addition of open source. Open source really started to drive a lot of momentum. Uh, who remembers this book? Does anyone remember that book? I know Steve uh, mentioned that he just read Kernigan's book from 2020, Unix, A History and Memoir. <laughs> there we go. But does anyone remember this one? Nobody remembers this one? The Cathedral and the Bazaar? Yeah, who wrote that one? Who remembers who wrote that one? I can picture the guy's it? face. I can't remember his name off the top of my head. Ah, uh, Paul's got it. ESR, Eric S. Raymond. There Eric, goes. yeah. <laughs> and so he became like the father of open source. Open source wasn't a word. It was considered free software, which unfortunately the Free Software Foundation had to keep on reminding people it's not free as in beer, it's free as in freedom. But Open source is a much better name. And so uh, Eric S. Raymond took it upon himself to be that steward at the right time in the 90s, 
and he added the open source dimension to the Unix philosophy. Very important dimension, right? Um, and he wrote this amazing book called Cathedral in the Bazaar. It's a difficult read, but it's well worth it if you try to read it. And this is the book that convinced uh, Netscape to actually open source themselves forming Mozilla, right? So if it was this book that was passed around between execs at Netscape that basically convinced them, you know what, open source is the future. This is what we have to do. And so what Eric S. Raymond did is he added a lot to the Unix philosophy. And you're going to see a lot of the Unix philosophy in these 10 points that he basically put in the Cathedral in the Bazaar. Like modularity, yeah, write, write small things that do one thing really, really well and composition kind of go together, right? Um, clarity, make sure that you're not writing for yourself, you know, because someone else has to modify your code. But one and three are clearly from the Unix philosophy, right? Two is added because it's open source. you got to work with other people developing this code. You know, separation and simplicity. These are Unix philosophy things, right? Um, and transparency and failure. Um, great for open source development, right? Make sure that if something goes wrong, that you find out really fast. Fail fast so that you can fix it fast, right? And, of course, diversity and extensibility, you could argue, are also based on the Unix philosophy, right? You know, keep your mind open. Things are going to change, right? And parsimony, my favorite one. <laughs> Don't be afraid to throw stuff away, you know, even if you spent 20 hours on doing it, right, if it sucks. So, you know, like, that's the kind of stuff that he kind of put in, you know, writing about this is the open source way. This is the open source philosophy that is an extension of the Unix philosophy because open source was pretty much not a Microsoft thing at that time. It was a Unix world thing, right? So Eric S. Raymond extended the Unix philosophy to include open source. Uh, but there was a dip. Um, so we had a lot of hoopla around 2000, right? We had the .NET bubble and then it burst. Um, there was a lot of Linux optimism. There were companies, there were Linux companies that were going, you know, they they were, they were getting, you know, listed on the stock exchange. I don't know if you guys remember that. Right. But it was crazy. And they were getting huge valuations and stuff like that. There was a tremendous amount of optimism around 2000, right? Open source was king, but the dot-com bubble, yeah, Linux VA, that's one, um, uh, the dot-com bubble burst and it kind of, did a number on open source in general and Linux kind of retreated away from the forefront into the background. Not that it reduced importance by any means, because by that time it was, it was a, a huge factor in pretty much every large system. But in the early two thousands, there were a lot of people that kind of didn't talk about the Unix philosophy or they questioned it. Right. And I think a lot of this had to do with fear, uncertainty and doubt related to Microsoft because Microsoft was really big in the early two thousands. Like .NET was going full force. I mean, Java was still big too, but they were after, they were trying to kill Java. They were trying to own the ecosystem again. They were doing a pretty convincing job in the early 2000s. So unfortunately, you know, <laughs> the Unix philosophy was for a period of time in the early 2000s considered an outdated thing, right? It was, you know, people valued Eric S. Raymond's points and open source projects still continued to go on. It's just, it wasn't considered something that was cool anymore, right? It had it, had its day a few years ago in, in the late nineties, right? Um, and some of the stuff that you would hear around this time was it doesn't scale well, or monolithic is bad, you know, um, monolithic, can, you know, monolithic isn't bad. It can be good for certain things. So, you know, open VMS over Linux, heaven forbid, right? Um, I never want to see that happen. 
but um, you know, people would blame security or problems with UI. And I think a lot of this had to do with Microsoft's rise and a lot of fear, uncertainty and doubt, right? But that did happen. So we do have to talk about it. Um, the good thing is, is in the background, uh, the open source movement and the Unix philosophy in general continued to just gain momentum. And where it gained momentum was in the university space, right? The university space um, was looking at this thinking, okay, what's the future going to look like in 20 years? Um, because that's where they have to think. And they got it right. And universities talked about it a lot. I remember hearing a lot about it. And so even in the early 2000s, they knew that open source would eventually take over, right? They knew that, you know, <laughs> that the, the wild predictions of Microsoft having a really rough time in a decade came true, right? Uh, of, you know, companies like Apple rising to fame, right? Because they had a Unix, a client-based Unix. I mean, these things were predicted a long time ago, right? But by the mid 2010s, uh, this is when it came, you know, almost out of nowhere into the forefront again, after it had already grown into a monster. Uh, somewhere around the mid 2010s, everyone just woke up and said, oh my gosh, Linux and open source is like running everything. Like the cloud is like 90% Linux, right? Um, and where's all these frameworks? Every programming language on the planet is open source, pretty much, including all the frameworks. Can you imagine? what would happen to JavaScript if it wasn't open source? <laughs> so, I mean, like, <laughs> so, I mean, this, this was happening in the backgrounds for well over a decade, but it just kind of came into everyone's forefront around the mid 2010s. And that's when in the university space and the college space, uh, the Unix philosophy was widely discussed. New people entering the space learned it right away. They, you know, uh, microservice architecture is considered the preferred, um, way of doing things still is. Um, and, you know, we still use text, right? <laughs> I mean, the, you know, how does an API talk, right? It's a universal interface. So a lot of these kind of small technical things that kind of came out in the foreground, in the mid 2000s, you can read about in this uh, short blog from Michael at uh, Red Hat. But I'm going to talk about more about where we are today. So today, where are we today? Well, Everyone knows Unix philosophy. I mean, you can't start first year undergrad computer science. You can't enter a, a you know, technical program in, in a college and, and not know what the Unix philosophy is if you're doing any sort of development. And it's very heavily quoted. Like you take any presentation, like I mentioned earlier, um, there'll be something on the Unix philosophy in there, right? Like that one I have on the right from Martin Klepman, right? Unix philosophy of distributed data. Great presentation if you want to Google it, but, you know, Every single online conference I attend has at least one or two of these, right? Um, we still focus on small, simple, reusable components, okay? So you can see these, you know, these REST APIs on these different modules that are probably containerized and run in the cloud environment beautifully, right? Um, this is just the architecture we've chosen, and it works well. It scales well. It's easy to modify. Um, I mean, we don't have to re-architect a monolithic app, we just need to replace a single component with something else, right? And of course, text is still king, right? I mean, yeah, it's, you know, there's YAML, but we won't blame anyone for that yet. Um, and everything is stored in the cloud. Like, I mean, the network is a computer. I mean, 
Sun predicted this. I mean, everything is stored. We don't have to worry about convincing people, yeah, it's a good idea to not store your files in your local machine storm in the cloud, right? Because when your local machine dies, they're still there, right? Um, so we still have a lot of these things today. These are front and center and open source still rules the world, right? I mean, the biggest choice you have now is, you know, oh, I want I want a component that does this so I don't have to code it in my app. Okay, let's look for something with an MIT license because we don't have to worry about the license, right? Uh, or, or BSD or something like that license. Um, there's also formal processes and norms. I mean, like, if you know what a maintainer is of an open source project, well, why do we have the word maintainer and contributor, you know, and stuff like that? These are these are um, parts of open source development that are well defined. I mean, you don't just start developing open source. There's a whole methodology to it and how people communicate and what tools we use. And uh, most of it is like centralized collaboration tools like GitHub and stuff like that. Right. So. Um, we've got all that and open source. The last dimension that was added to the Unix philosophy is probably the most important one today. Um, LPI did a pretty cool take on it. If you Google the futures hiring Linux professional Institute, you'll see a good video they did about six years ago, um, on how pervasive open source development has become. Right. And, uh, this is just, you know, the last dimension of the Unix philosophy. So. Feel free to Google that. It's a great video. Um, I think they uh, they ripped off a series of videos that were popular at the time, the same kind of music, and they just turned it to Linux, right? But it kind of embodies, you know, what someone entering this field today will see, right? Someone entering this field today, they know that Unix is both a philosophy and a set of operating systems that look and feel the same, right? So is it Linux? Is it BSD? Is it Mac OS? It's all Unix to them, right? You know, they're, you know, it's it's older people like us that will say, well, technically it's a Unix kernel, not a Linux kernel or a Linux kernel, not a Unix kernel. Right. Who cares? Right. It's a they're all Unix systems. Right. And they all obey the Unix philosophy. Um, and. Basically, you know, the additions to that Unix philosophy over time have really kind of come front and center. So if we look back at 1973, I mean, we still haven't strayed too far from what, uh, you know, Ken Thompson said back then, you know, write programs that do one thing and, and do it well, right? That could be utilities. It could be microservices, right? Write programs to work together, right? Could be a REST API. It could be piping. It doesn't matter. And we write programs that handle text streams because that's a universal interface. So there's your, you know, JSON, your YAML, your XML, whatever you want to use, right? Um, and, uh, the only thing that we've done to that original Unix philosophy from 1973 is we've we've emphasized simplicity because people realized by around 1980 that that was one of the main reasons they liked Unix, <laughs> right? <laughs> they don't want to work with something like overly complex, and they added the his son added the network dimension, and uh, Eric S. Raymond, I guess, can be credited with adding the open source dimensions to that Unix philosophy, right? And now we have the Unix, the modern Unix philosophy in 2023. That's, that's where I wanted to finish with, uh, today, guys. So that's, that's my little refresher on the Unix philosophy. Um, how do you guys like it? Unintended? Does anyone have anything to add to it? More comments? I saw some comments in the meeting chat. They were pretty cool. Yeah. Steven said there's a, Steve said there's a lot of interest in Minix before Linux came out. Yeah. That's well. I think Linus based a lot of what he was doing kind of on Minix, right? 
Yeah. Bob, Bob says you'll never forgive Microsoft for the nineties and and two thousands. Yeah. And Oh, so I knew someone was going to bring up system D. (laughs) I knew. So does like, if you Google system D Unix philosophy, you're going to see a lot of people say, does system D, you know, obey the Unix philosophy? Yes or no. I mean, well, sometimes you get, uh, people resistant to change. Um, and my, my take on it is that system D, I can't think of a reason why system D disobeys the Unix philosophy. Okay. Yes, it is one component that does a lot of different things. But if you look at the design of that component, it's not one component. It's a very modular system made up of several components that can be easily interchanged. That is definitely Unix philosophy. But you will see a lot of people blaming, in the, you know, oh, system D doesn't, you know, you know, adhere to the Unix philosophy. It's a system, it's a, a system daemon that we really needed to have. Um, and I don't think it disobeys the Unix philosophy at all. I mean, if you've ever written unit files, you realize, oh yeah, this is, this is the Unix philosophy. <laughs> I write a lot of unit files. So <laughs> there we go. But I don't know. You could disagree with me. on it. Oh, uh, so has anyone written about Waterloo receiving a copy of Unix? Actually, uh, I, when I went to Waterloo, um, I actually, we had the copy of Unix in the, um, uh, what is it, on third floor of math, the computer, the, uh, computer science club, the CS club had the original copy of AT&T Unix, uh, version two that they got for free. That was the version they got. So now it wasn't like, I don't even know if there was a version one, but there was, it was version two and it was on tape and they had it in the, uh, actually in the room in the CS club, which was a really stinky room right across from the cafeteria on the third floor of math computer building. Um, and so that's how I knew they had a copy of it, but I did hear of it a few other times where people mentioned, yeah, and we got a copy. Of it. I think a lot of universities got a copy of it. The only three that I know of that actually did get one or that I've heard over the years, um, is Mannheim in Germany and Waterloo in Canada and Berkeley. But I'm sure knowing AT&T, they probably gave it away to any university who asked for it. Right. So maybe there's a copy at, uh, I don't know. Nova Southeastern or, you know, UBC or something like that. Right. Uh, but most universities wouldn't have done much with it. Right. They, at that time, it was just Berkeley that took the bull by the horns and ran with it. Right. Everyone says he's not anti-system D by the way. Yeah. I love system D. I think it's the best thing since last break. <laughs> Trust me. And I write a lot of unit files. I mean, I don't even mount stuff with that CFS tab anymore. I just make, I make mount units. Auto mount units, even better. Ron's typing there. Uh, nobody else has any comments on the Unix philosophy? I'm spread it out. I'm off. <laughs> there's a book from there. So there's an author called Michael Warren Lucas, and he's he writes on BSD stuff. He lives in Michigan, in Detroit, um, and he goes to BSD Can every year in Ottawa. Drives right through KW on the way here, but um, the. Uh, He's written a book called Savage by System D. And it's absolutely hilarious, kind of cringeworthy, but it deals with the fact that the BSD community will never embrace something like System D. And I think the BSD Unix community are the ones spreading that. It's not the Unix philosophy stuff. Well, if they ever played with it, they realize it's actually amazing. And that's kind of in that book as well, right? So, but it's a fiction book. Michael Warren Lucas writes fiction and nonfiction related to BSD. He's written a book called Git Commit Murder, which is a murder mystery. And it's actually quite funny. Emacs to edit my system. I'm more of a Vim person. 
I've used Emacs. Not too impartial. <laughs> there we go. Savage by system. Yes. Yeah, so don't, I've read the book guys, just so you know, because I did it on a dare. Um, but uh, I wouldn't recommend reading it. So, you know, forget Andrew's link. Like, don't click on it. Don't order it. <laughs> even the, even the forward says, you know, I handed this copy out to five of my friends that have since never spoken to me again. You know, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Um, I think there's something to be said about uh, the use of Unix, at least by the early 80s at University of Waterloo, because so many computer science students had learned it and were becoming virtually addicted to it, that when they started to go out and get jobs and found themselves stuck on PCs, on, you know, DOS PCs and so on, they really agitated to try to get uh, the, the Unix-based tools available within their development environment. And that sort of thing fostered the, um, Mark Williams, for example, that did a Unix kernel and a bunch of utilities uh, for the PC. And then in Waterloo, Mortis Current Systems, MKS, which didn't do a kernel, but rewrote all the utilities um, to run on DOS so that a lot of these students who had Unix graduated using Unix uh, could put together a, a, a programming environment with the tools that, that they were used to. So in that way, the various universities who got copies of Unix really had a big effect on what was going on in the world. Yeah, that's that's a great point, actually. Um, you know, and a very valid point, you know. So, I mean, uh, and Unix, I mean, I, I wasn't around in the early 80s uh, at university, but in the, by the late 80s, I mean, at Waterloo, I can tell you it was everywhere. I mean, everything. Right. I knew. It was, um, I mean, it was the dominant operating system and everyone, you know, had to learn Unix and work with the shell and all that kind of jazz. You know, completely right. But we, we had, uh, we even had Next Step there, but we ran them on HP PA risk boxes because they didn't want to buy the expensive Next hardware and it ran faster on HP's PA risk stuff. So they <laughs> saved money, <laughs> had big labs of it. But they had SGI machines, they had Sun machines, IBM machines, AX, all, every, everything when I was there. And um, that must have, that didn't happen overnight. That must have been that decade you're talking about where universities really pushed Unix and they probably pushed it into the industry a lot. It was like everywhere though. Apparently Unix just boomed everywhere. Like it was the eighties, it just rose to fame. I wonder how much Sun and a lot of the other companies had to do with that. The universities for sure. They had very close connections at the time. Even Sun was, you know, Stanford. Uh, I think Sun's major role was to provide Unix on a workstation, on powerful workstations for research purposes. Uh, they were, they were often found in physics labs or biology labs or even psychology labs, um, in the eighties. I remember, I mean, I was so envious of people on campus who had enough grant money to buy a, a Sun workstation. Yeah, they were uh, cheap. But yeah, that's what I, I used a lot. I cut my teeth on deck stuff, but Sun was, I mean, I worked for Sun, but I mean, Sun stuff is what I use more than anything else. 
and they were there. It was like nobody, you know, there was that saying, nobody got fired for buying IBM. Well, that changed. <laughs> nobody got fired for buying Sun, right? I mean, <laughs> anything made by Sun, you couldn't, you know, technically get fired for buying, no matter how much. It, Paul's got CDU in there, but I don't know what that means. Interesting story, actually. Common, oh, <laughs> CDE, you mean? Common desktop environment? CD. Okay, yeah. CD was, yeah. Uh, the motif kind of lost out to, uh, to that, right? So I've used both. Wasn't a great desktop. I liked IRX's 4DWM desktop the most. That was a great desktop. And Lucas says, where he works, he used Ubuntu for developers, and it was wonderful. Then they moved to Windows and Mac. <laughs> there you go. Uh, they can easily beat files for wipe compromised machines. Uh, well, Linux is capable of that, but not... Um, in a nice packaged way that would might might make the person making that decision, like the sysadmin, say, you know what, I'm willing to go down that rabbit hole and figure this out, or I'm just going to do something that's quick and easy. So a lot of decisions are made for the quick and easy stuff, in my opinion, um, or from my experience. And I wonder what's happening with Red Hat now. Red Hat's doing some weird stuff. <laughs> common, yes. Yeah, so KD is just a, a fun play on the words common. Common K O M M O N, right? Because it was uh, Matthias Eckreich who made KDE, right? With the QT libraries back in the early days of Linux. Uh, but if you look at the Wikipedia page, they'll say K doesn't stand for anything. They say K desktop environment, but it originally stood for common if you go back far enough or if you read any books from the 1990s, right? I'm sure it's in there because that's what it originally stood for common with a, with a K instead of a C because the creator was German. Yeah, and IBM bought Red Hat, so that's really strange. But Red Hat has been an amazing company in every way to the open source world. Uh, they've done some just amazing things, uh, especially under the hood in the development of Linux. And so to see something like Red Hat doing what they did with CentOS recently, <laughs> the source code for Red Hat recently, sorry, that uh, it's kind of strange to see that coming from a company like Red Hat which have been angels for the last two decades. Yeah. Yeah. There's lots of stuff. I mean, mobile device management is big now compared to group policy, like Intune, right? And Intune can manage both Macs and Windows. So maybe that's what the admin was using or wanted to use. And that's why they prevented you from using Ubuntu, right? So a small decision like that can mean a change of platform. But I mean, if you work at some, some companies are very heavy on Linux, like Christie digital is very heavy on Linux workstations, SAP, very heavy. Um, you know, uh, mainly because they develop on it, right? And it is easier to develop certain uh, certain things on Linux compared to Mac OS and Windows, definitely. But if you're doing any kind of development, Mac OS makes more sense than Windows because it is a Unix system. So you can easily get things set up within minutes, not hours, and it will work the way you expect it to be working and you'll have a lot more support, right? So for developers, we like the Unix Linux world <laughs> nowadays, right? And that's mainly because everything kind of evolved around there in the last two decades, right? That yeah, sounds like a seg segue. So it's, uh, I guess uh, it's what top of the hour. So I can I can hand the reins over to uh, to the other Jason, and he can get started on talking about development environments. All right, well, welcome, guys. All right, Th thank you for presenting, Jason. And we appreciate you stepping in at the last minute. That was uh, that was really awesome, and the presentation was very interesting. Yeah, I threw that together like today, 
So, <laughs> so you, you, you dumped your personal knowledge very effectively. I think that I, that I prepared a lot for that. <laughs> I, I think you've got enough Waterloo history that it, it always makes me curious about more about like how things happened and what the, what the stories were in more detail. Oh, it's, it's definitely Hogwarts. There's a lot of people don't know about Waterloo. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much. That was, that was interesting history and discussion. And yes, all the puns in the, in the chat of all the, the multiple Jasons. <laughs> um, can you guys see my screen? Okay. Yep. Okay. All right. So, uh, uh, I put together a couple slides, but a lot of this is going to be demos. Um, and uh, hopefully just some discussions as well. Um, so feel free to stop and ask questions. Um, if you want to see something more, um, I'll kind of show some examples, uh, but just to get started with it. Um, so just to talk about what development environments are, um, it's a workspace for developers to make changes when you're not, so you don't break anything in the live environment. Obviously you don't want to be you know, editing your production environment live. Uh, you usually want to test in a local environment, then test in a development environment, staging, and then eventually push to production. Um, so you would test, if you were testing locally, you could test um, somewhere with all of the, um, you know, dependencies, libraries, all the tools you'll need, you, you'll need it all somewhere. Um, <laughs> Paul says, let the users be your QA. Uh, well, some companies do that. <laughs> um, so the problem with the local development environment is um, you'll have some differences between your local and production software. Uh, you might have different versions of things installed on your local machine versus what's in production. You might be running completely different operating systems. So if you're developing on Windows or you're developing on Mac OS, but your you know, servers are working on Linux, um, you, you could have different versions of um, dependencies, modules. Um, the other problem is that if you want to set up a local environment to test something, um, maybe you pull down the code, you'll pull down like a repo, a repository and there's, you know, I've seen it where there's uh, a readme with, you know, steps and steps and steps to set up a, a local environment to test. You know, you might have make files, you might have scripts, you might have um, dependencies you have to install manually. Um, and there's always the problem that, you know, you may have different, a different re result on your local environment or on a, someone else's environment than, uh, what other people see, which is where you get the, it works on my computer uh, situation. Um, it also becomes a problem when you have new people coming onto the team that aren't as familiar with the stack or they are not as familiar with the software. And it takes a long, a lot longer for them to onboard and start, uh, start working with the, uh, with the software. So some of the things that have been done in the past to kind of work around this issue, uh, Python has, you know, the ability for virtual environments uh, so you can have different versions of Python, different versions of the third-party libraries, um, and you can define that all in code, uh, and you can build a local a virtual environment, activate it, uh, do some testing there. Uh, virtual machines were another good way to do this, where you can, you know, you can have a virtual environment uh, that you can spin up and spin down. This is nice when you're context switching. Um, so if you're working on one product or a module, you can spin up a virtual environment, work on it. Uh, switch uh, to another one. Um, and there's also uh, online environments. So Cloud9 is a good example of this. Is, um, you can, you, it's basically a virtual machine with everything built in that you can turn on 
connect to, there's an online browser-based editor, or you can connect using your own local uh, development environment editor. Um, so with containerization, uh, you have a lot of new features and possibilities, uh, especially around development environments. So you can you can define your development environment as code, <clears throat> Uh, which means it's easier to share. You can keep it in the same repository as your uh, as your as your software. Um, you can also automate building the development environment uh, at, into a container that you then connect to. Um, and then this is also um, handy because you can you can make it more platform agnostic. So it doesn't matter if you're uh, developing on a Mac or developing on uh, Windows or you know ARM versus x86 to a, to a point. Um, you can basically build the same container and connect to it and do your work inside of that for testing. Um, and one of the most recent things is that rather than just relying on your local laptop or your desktop uh, and the hardware that you have available there, you can also you can instead build your build your environment, connect to it in the cloud, and take advantage of additional hardware there. Um, so you can keep it on a remote server, uh, connect to it, do your work. You can you know build your environment there. Do your testing there, um, and that re that reduces some, you know, introduces some security issues, but also reduces others where you're this. Um, so PyCharm, uh, IntelliJ, uh, the one I've used the most is is VS Code, um, that has the ability to connect to. You can either SSH into a uh, a virtual machine or a server, or you can connect to a container. Um, so for developing it inside inside a container. Um, VS Code has this dev containers extension that uh, basically you can kind of map your reports you need to work with, uh, the code um, to the, fi the file system. You can define the workspace that you want to use, and you can even add in things like um, extensions uh, to VS Code that'll, that'll run inside of the container. Um, and then you can add your dependencies and uh, all the requirements that you'll need for your software to work. Um, so the Visual Studio Code uses the dev containers um, standard. Uh, it's defined as a Docker file for the actual container. And then there's a JSON file, the dev container.json file. And these are in their own folder um, that you can specify like other configurations to the environment itself. Um, and then you need this extension, the dev containers extension to build and connect to the container. Um, so I'm going to sh just show really quick. Hopefully this switches over okay. Oop. Try this again. That was. There we go. So this is just an example. Um, so you can see here. This uh, we've got a dev container folder. You've got a Docker file. So this Docker file shows we're going to create a. Ubuntu container, and then we're going to run a bunch of commands to install these packages, um, set some environment variables. Um, there's some other things you can run here, so we can uh, set up uh, Node.js is what I was doing, and then you can run up, you can run other commands, set some environment variables. Uh, this was really for a. Oh, sorry, I will blow that up. Let me see if I can do that. Get rid of that for now. Hopefully, that's a little better. Problem. Um, so yeah, you can you can set your you know basically the same as you would for a regular Docker container that you're building is that you you know set your base image. Um, you can install the software you want. 
uh, any commands you need to run afterwards. So this is installing Node.js, installing AWS CLI, Postgres client. Um, you can pull in um, environment variables or set environment variables inside the container, um, get, give yourself a shell. And then the, find it now, this is the, this is the dev container.json file. So this is other configuration settings outside. So when you're actually running the dev environment, you can set things like port forwarding. So if you want to have ports exposed in the container to connect to, you can do that. If you have VS code extensions, you want installed that you can, you want installed inside the container to use, you can do that. Um, You know, so I have environment variables that I'm pulling from the local environment uh, into the container. Um, so they're not defined in my code base, but they're defined locally. And then I can uh, refer to those. And any any commands after I can after I actually connect to the um, to the container, I can have it run these as well. So if there's other things you need to run live, you can have it do that as well. So the, and these are just examples. Uh, there's there's a lot of information on the website, so it's just um, containers.dev. Uh, with the with the standards and how this works, um, so I I can try to show you how this works. So hopefully, with the screen size, it's not going to be too bad. Go go here. So let's do. So normally, I would do a dev container. I've already installed the um, the extension, by the way. So if I go here, see, I've got the dev containers extension already open or already running installed. Um, and I want that to go away. So you can do dev container build, and this will actually, you know, go through the process of building the, the Docker image itself. Um, and it usually takes a while and my computer's pretty old, so I won't do it now. I've already pre-done it. Uh, and then I can just do dev container open and this, this will actually launch, read the, the, the configuration files in this, um, directory and then launch the actual, um, the, uh, a separate instance of the IDE, in this case, Visual Studio Code, with uh, inside the dev container. So I'm gonna, I don't know why I have to keep stopping my share. Um, so I apologize for that. Because I'm just trying to show my, um, my whole screen here. Maybe this will work. There we go. So you can see behind me, I've got the original VS Code window. And uh, when I launched, uh, the dev container open it, it booted up an, another one, and this is inside the container itself that's running. And it didn't like something with my dependencies for the commands to run when it started, but uh, you can see I'm inside my container now. It has the these two files, and um, uh, I can do my development work in here. And uh, so you got your work, it creates a workspaces and then I created a directory for this. So normally I'd pull my code down and then it would be available in here uh, with all the, the prerequisites installed. So that's just an example. Now let me just go back here. Um, so the uh, there's other options. So that's locally. And the problem with local is you're, you're limited by your own computer hardware. Um, there are some other options for that use a similar technology. So Gitpod is a good example of that. Uh, GitHub Code Spaces and uh, AWS Code Catalyst is released now. That the the one thing is that they, these all use different standards. Um, so Gitpod has their own YAML file, uh, Docker file um, setup that it knows how to read. Um, 
GitHub code spaces pretty much uses the same standard as local. So you have a .dev container folder with your uh, Docker file and JSON file. Uh, and AWS Code Catalyst uses something called dev file. So there's a, there's a separate uh, standard there. Um, just as a quick example for Gitpod, um, it, it can, um, you can set up tasks to run uh, before, during, and after you start up the container environment. Um, and you can also pre-build it so you can, you know, so instead of having to do a lot, all the installs every time you start up the container, you can actually do it um, ahead of time uh, and only run a minimal amount of commands when you start up the container. Um, so I'll do a quick demo of Gitpod. Uh, it's just what I've been more familiar with. Um, so this is, there's a, there's a plugin for Chrome uh, for Gitpod. So I can just hit this. This is a, um, a boot camp I was doing. And so if I hit Gitpod here, it's going to start up a workspace. I'll just tell it, use this um, rep code repository. I'm going to use VS Code in a browser. It actually has a pretty good browser-based editor. And then you can actually set uh, how much resources to give it. Um, and there's a cost based on that. I'm just going to go with standard for now. Um, and that's going to open up the workspace. Uh, so what it's doing in the background right now is it's pulling a Docker image down. Uh, and it's going to start that up, create a workspace. And see, this is all in the browser here um, that it's starting my editor. So VS Code. Uh, and it's pulled all my code down. And once it starts, it's actually going to um, run the tasks that are that are set. And I'll show you those in a second um, to... Uh, to basically prep this environment for use. So I'll show you this while it's while it's starting. And I'll make it a little bigger. Yep. Um, so I can show you here at the bottom, you can see it's installing everything that it uh, that it, it's been set to do. So it's installing all, a bunch of um, I think this is the pip requirements and um, packages and npm installs running. So it does that all automatically, and that's all defined in here. So I have it set to pre-build. Um, I've got some tasks set up. So to install the AWS CLI, um, it's installing. So it's running a pip3 install. It's running an NPM install. It logs into Docker Hub. And then it installs all these VS Code extensions for me and then exposes these ports. Um, so yes, it, Paul, it is installing all this in the cloud. This is all running on Gitpod servers uh, in this case. Um, so I'm connecting to a container running in the cloud and I'm doing all my development work there. And then when I can either disconnect from it and leave it running, or I can commit my code to the repository, uh, kill the container. And then the next time I need to start, uh, developing again, I just spin up a new copy of the, of the container, uh, to work on. And the, this is nice because it's all, um, it's all temporary. So you just, you just pull it up and down as, as you need to. Um, I think... I'm just going to see if I can log into the Gitpod site. Yeah. So if I go to Gitpod's website, gitpod.io slash workspaces, you can see I've got two containers here that are running. This one's not actually running at the moment. It stopped. And this is the one that I just started up. Um, and I can actually just kill those. I can delete them. I can I can uh, pin them so that they, are, they stay around. Um, there's lots of flexibility here. Um, so that's that's Gitpod uh, running uh, 
in the cloud. And then, so I also, for this example, I did a dev container. So this is for the local environment, or you could most likely use this with um, uh, GitHub code spaces. Sorry, I'll try to zoom, make this a little bigger. So you kind of have the same thing. So you can set your ports, you can set port forwarding, you can make your port, name your ports. This is, uh, all this is here is uh, in VS code. It gives you a nice tab that you can click on to, so you know what the ports are, name, you know, give them labels, that sort of thing. Uh, VS code extensions to install, um, set my terminal, bunch of environment variables. Uh, and then these are the commands to run after I connect to the, uh, to the container to run. Right. Um, so that's, uh, the Docker file here is basically, like I said, showed before is just go through, you know, pull your image, um, can run all your install all your dependencies for the for the inside the container anything you need from uh, python for you via pip for um if you, anything you need for npm for doing node and any other dependencies or environment variables you can set that all up automatically and this is all stored inside the uh, repository so if anyone else pulls this repository um these files are all preset so you don't have to spend you know hours or longer uh building a uh a test environment or a local, you know, development environment. You just um, you just pull pull the repo down, and you can build it locally, or you can build it in the cloud. Um, and that's pretty much all I had. Um, I can demo it a little bit more if anyone has any specific questions. I know I've got it running uh, locally right now. Um, I don't have too much in it to show you, but uh, if anyone has any questions, I can uh, I can show uh, other specifics. Yes, I always like using dark mode. Absolutely. Try not to destroy anyone's retinas. Uh, I see other people typing, so there'll be other questions, but I will interject one to start with. Um, can dev container use non-local resources? Or is it assumed that it's always stuff that's in a Docker image running locally? So you so the so the dev containers um, extension, and I'll just close these and show you this. So the the extension itself, you can like in VS Code, you can connect to a local container, you can connect to a remote container, uh, or you can connect to, you know like to a server. So I can use this. S, there's a different extension um, for SSH. Find it here, right? So you can have VS Code SSH to a uh, a remote server and do all your development work there. Um, so you're not limited to your local machine, your local hardware. And that's what that's where things like Gitpod or GitHub code spaces uh, come in because they're basically launching the uh, the development environment in the cloud and then you just connect locally to that. I don't hope that answers your question. Yes, I think so. So it sounds like, like I could do something like a or if I if I had an environment that needed an external component, I could have like a, I don't know a Terraform thing that would spin up that external stuff, and then a dev container configuration that would talk to that correctly. I suspect so, I'd be overcomplicating what I'm thinking through here. Yeah, like I mean, I so as an example, like uh, some sometimes what I'll do is I'll I'll spin up a virtual machine. And I'll connect my local VS code to that virtual machine over SSH, and it's like I'm coding locally, 
right? Except I'm using the remote systems hardware, right? And I'll then I'll I'll run my Terraform there. I'll you know I'll run all that stuff there. Um, and you could, you know, to kind of take what you're saying, you could you could build an image that has everything you need in it. It's just um, the way that you know, like so you could use something like um, Packer, for example, to define a virtual machine, build a virtual machine with everything you need. Um, but because we're doing this with um, with Docker, we're doing it as a Docker file. It's much more like light, more lightweight. Mm-hmm. So you yeah, can do it either way. Yeah. And just to answer the question in chat, um, so I'm not sure. I I'm not super familiar with using Node. Um, this was mostly the way we were developing for uh, a, a boot camp that I was involved in, and we were running a front end that was built in Node.js and a back end that was built in Python. So we had to pull npm pull some things, um, and that was all preset and. Uh, like what we needed to do, and I just automated it a little bit better. So I, I'm not sure when you're saying node sources, you're suspicious about node source and the domain ownership. I'm not, I'm not super familiar with that, uh, just because I don't, I don't do a lot of development with, with Node. But everything, everything I'm doing is is defined in code, uh, so it's all in the dev container and uh, you know Docker file. So the research, so the use case for the, for uh, for this. Like I said, there's there's a lot of different use cases. Um, having this available, like for example, um, at my job, we'll have you know, let's say, twenty different repositories that are building different modules for software that we're running. Um, you know, in the past, I've gone to some of these repositories, and there'd be like a giant README that says, "Here's how you build your local environment." You know, pull the code down, install this, install this create a Python virtual environment, do these commands, do these commands, and so on and so on. Um, so this lets you just basically pull that, pull it down and the entire development environment, the entire local environment is available as a, in code. So it's good for, good for me coming on, if I coming in as bringing in a new person because I don't have to, they don't have to go through all those steps. It's, it's all defined and shared and it's consistent. So, you know, me bringing up a, you know, a development environment using, uh, a dev container is the same or should be the same as somebody doing it on their own other computer. And yes, it's all done in version control. So, right. Like, so this, this repository, uh, as an example, right. Uh, is just, this is just a sample one that I created. Um, so you have a dot dev container folder, right. And then you've got your files defined in here and that's all persisted in, um, it's all persisted in, uh, in, in the repository in GitHub. So the remote SSH uh, is is an extension in VS Code. So you'd have to you'd have to go into VS Code, go to your extensions, and you'd have to install this remote dash SSH extension, right? And then what that does is it lets you connect to like I can basically open up a terminal and connect to a, a remote IP log in with SSH and then it connects as if it's a, a local environment. So I can, I don't have one I can really show right now, but um, I think if I just go terminal, it's run. Sometimes I'm, I get lost inside of VS Code, but command palette maybe? Yeah, there it is. So you can remote SSH connect to host. I just went to view command palette and then you can do remote SSH, connect to host, and then SSH to, you know, a username and password, for example. I don't even know if this one's still up. 
Um, yeah, oh, apparently it is. Or it's trying anyway. <laughs> that, that was an old machine that I just had a virtual machine running uh, and I connected to it to do some, like, um, I think it was a PostgreSQL. Yeah. Um, the other thing, like I said, is the command palette. You can do all the dev containers commands from here. Um, you can do it through the UI, but I just prefer to do it through the command line. I just Sometimes these don't work the way I expect them to. This is all done through the extension. Um, and I'd rather just do like dev containers, dev containers open in a command line. So Paul has a good question as how do you keep your dev container costs in the cloud from spinning out of control? Um, so that's a good question. Uh, most of these cloud-based ones are, they have pricing. And so you've got uh, like Gitpod as an example, uh, I will bring up their pricing. So we were using the free, the free plan. So the free plan is you get 50 hours for a month for free. Um, and then after that, you have to pay. So actually during this bootcamp, we had a lot of people that exceeded the 50 hours free. Um, and they, you know, you can pay as you go. You can add, it's not that expensive. So $9 a month, uh, double. So you can, to double your resources, you get, a, you know, basically a hundred hours per month. Um, the other thing you can do is, um, you can define how the size of the environment and the bigger the environment, uh, the more credits it takes up. So they, and I think uh, Gitpod has, Gitpod has a couple different sizes for the, for the environment. Yeah, here we go. So let's say you want, um, this is the default is a large, a large environment it has uh, eight cores and 10, 16 gigs of RAM and 50 gigs of storage. And a standard has four cores, eight gigs of RAM and 330 gigs of storage. So you can go larger if you need to, but it just burns more credits. Um, and GitHub code spaces is very similar. Um, uh, let's see if I can find the pricing for that really quick. Yeah. So, so you've got different compute. Um, so you can have a, you know, two core machine, four core machine, eight core machine, the amount of memory, the amount of CPU, all that kind of thing. Uh, different spaces, different sizes for that. Um, and then you you basically are paying for what you use. Um, I I came up with the solution to do it locally. Um, you know, build a dev container locally, run it locally, but then you're constrained by your local PC uh, resources. Um, and the other thing you can do is so like I showed you with GitPod, uh, the workspaces that are running, you can actually go in here. Like there's they they stop themselves, I believe, after 15 minutes by default. That is configurable at least with the with the um, premium, like the paid plan. You could also manually go in here and stop them when you're done with them, or you can just delete them completely. Um, and then they're not like once the, when they're not running, they're not taking up any uh, resources because it's just a stopped container that's uh, stored somewhere. So Bob's saying, do I understand correctly from a developer perspective, this gives you the ability to create a consistent environment across peers to work on a project and the work on the project itself, not the container environment, is the deliverable that gets pushed to version control. Um, yes, uh, the 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 dev container, you know, configuration is pushed to version control, and then it's either built locally or it's built in the cloud um, to actually run it. Um, and then on top of that, so as an example. Uh, you go to this. This was the this was the uh, uh, the the 
repository that uh, that I was running this uh, bootcamp for. So you can see here, we've got some AWS resources. We have a backend built in Flask and then a front-end built in J- uh, Node.js. So if I go into here, you've got all the code uh, all linked, listed in here, right? And we're actually building Docker containers inside of Docker containers, which is, that's a, that's a, a fun, a fun part of this is that uh, there's actually some configuration that's needed if you're going to be doing that. Um, but, you know, we have all our sources and source files in here, right? So this all gets pulled into the de- development container to work on. And, and I can build this app locally, you know, inside the container, right? And then it's just defined by these, uh, like this is the Gitpod way of doing it. So Gitpod has a YAML file and a Gitpod Docker file. So the YAML file has uh, a lot, all the configuration here uh, of what, what needs to be done here. Yeah. And that's, it's sort of like an infrastructure as code uh, solution where, you know, rather than having to build and save an image somewhere, you're, you're defining the entire development environment as code and then storing it in the same repository. So I'm going to ask one in voice then. So when you're working on the programs inside of these containers, like maybe, maybe I'm, I have an old school mentality of you have a dev environment and you have a production environment, or is this something different, like a, a new model? Cause, cause the way that I'm positioning this is that as a developer, you do the work on the software in your development environment. And then at some point somebody goes to push it into like, well, like you said, there, staging and then ultimately to live. But is the, is the development environment itself, like the Docker and all those all those files that create the Docker environment, is that part of the production release or is that involved in the production running of the application too? Yeah. So that's a, that's a good question. And I think we go through the normal software release process. So you would normally you would test something locally on your laptop, right? You would, you would code it locally. You would test it locally. This is, this is designed to supplement that. Right. And then once you're, confident in your changes, you would commit those changes to your, to your version control system to Git, for example, right? And then you could set it up to run in your development environment. Like if you had a, you know, a dev uh, server running in the cloud or in a local data center, then you would test it there. If you had a, then had a staging environment, you would run it there and then you could push to production. Or, you know, if you're using uh, CICD, you can, you can automate uh, a lot of that. So this is really, this is really to, to, uh, to enhance the first one, to, to, to enhance your local testing, right? Um, so, you know, for example, if you're running a Python application, I'll go back to this slide. If you're running a Python application on your local laptop, um, you've got four different versions of Python installed. You've got, you know, different versions of the third-party libraries installed using pip. Um, you know, rather than having to, you know, switch between running a one application and running another one, either you're flipping between you know, okay, I need to run, you know, you have a conflict in your, um, your installed software that this kind of takes care of that because it's all contained within the, the, the Docker container. Does that, does that help clear that up? Yeah, I, I think I get that part of it. The, the, the disconnect that I think I'm having is how does this actually map onto the production version of the software that you're working on? You know, like, let's say in this, you know, you're working on a Python 2.7 application here, which portion of that ultimately makes it into staging and production? And how does that relate to 
the environment that you've shown created here for working on this? Like, does it all go into production or no, this is the development environment, but the development environment simulates what's actually in production so that you're working on the same set of libraries or dependencies that the production environment has. Or it, it, like, that's where my disconnect is. Like, how does this map onto production, I guess? Right. So this is, this is really, again, it's really only designed for local, right? So you want to do all your local development. You've got your debugging tools. You've got, you know, you could have a different version of the, um, the, the app that you're running. You could have it set up to run in debug mode, extra logging, right? And none of that has to come across to, you know, when you're, when you're deploying to production. <clears throat> so this, um, Go back to I don't know where I brought that. Yeah. So if I go back to this example, <clears throat> right, we've got um, you know this backend Flask, this frontend JS. You know, we're what what this actually what we build a, a dev container. We play around with this. We can launch the application um, inside that, right? But when we're ready to actually deploy to uh, production, we're actually running it as a Docker Compose, right? We're actually building the entire thing as its own container. And that's running, uh, you know, it has none of the um, the tools or the debugging tools or, um, you know, it's, I think we were using a, a dev environment with, with Ubuntu with a bunch of uh, extra tools. And we ran in like an Alpine container um, with, you know, that's all very stripped down uh, for the for the actual application itself. Okay, so then then the container does make it into production, but it's not the development-rich container. It's the stripped-down version of that same container, hardened or whatever, optimized for production. Is that more a true statement then? So this this um, boot camp gets a little confusing when we're talking about containers because we're developing inside of a container, right? We're using Gitpod, for example to do our development and we're, we're committing all our code to, uh, to GitHub. Right. And then as part of the development work, we're, we're containerizing these applicate, this application as a, as a backend and front end container, and then running those in like AWS, for example. Right. So, so then is the code that you're working on backend flask and front end react JS, those are the things that are, kind of the deliverable, like the project that you're working on and the other yes. stuff is just the infrastructure, right? Yes, yes, exactly. And the, and the, the other stuff that's in here, so like the source, uh, the, um, you know, a lot, the other, the other files in here don't make it into production. They don't make it into the, into the Docker, like the Docker file doesn't, doesn't pull those in. So the, the development environment is completely separate from what gets built and sent to production. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. I get it. Thank you. And uh, uh, one of the questions is a build pipeline could use a different environment and secrets. <clears throat> yeah. So, I mean, you absolutely can use a dev environment and keep it in the repository. And when you commit your code and, you know, do a pull request, you can, app, you, you can trigger, you know, CICD, you could trigger build pipelines. Um, you could pull secrets from, you know, different secrets from a, a secrets manager Um yeah, this like we and then we uh, we actually did that where we're, we're storing secrets in in AWS for the live environment and we're using dummy 
credentials when we're testing locally. So a lot of good, lot of good questions. I'm, I'm glad to see a lot of people curious about this. Um, I think I, did I miss anyone's questions? I think we're, I think we're good. Yeah, I, I think you're caught up. But yeah, I think the, the idea of using this for training stuff is really good. I know, I think even through the, through the years of lug, I think we've done three or four different ways that people have played with to set up demo environments. And I don't know that any of them were ever, like, I think they kind of worked, but none of them were ever really super satisfactory as I remember them. So, yeah, I mean, this just takes it abstracts it and, but kind of takes it down to different levels. Um, you know, like I said, you could do this with virtual machines. Um, so I'll just give an example here. I actually wrote an, I wrote an article about this a long time ago. Um, yeah, I, I think I remember people trying out Vagrant and it, I guess, maybe just because it wasn't so standard for everyone to have Vagrant installed at that time, that just getting Vagrant installed was definitely a first challenge. Yeah, yeah. So, so like this is an example. I think I have some environments set up here. So there's like an Ubuntu Vagrant file. So I can, you can set up uh, Vagrant and, and uh, it'll read this and tells it, you know, map these folders, open this SSH port, and then, you know, build a Ubuntu server, you know, here's the resources. And this is a, this is a, I think this is a Ruby, Ruby file. And, uh, and this, you know, run these updates inside of the, uh, inside of the, inside of the virtual machine. I had it installing AWS CLI, install in Terraform, Packer, um, all kinds of stuff, right? And then you'd, you, so you'd have Vagrant as the software installed on your Windows machine, for example. Um, you would just say Vagrant up this, uh, this file and it'll build this entire environment, launch it in VirtualBox, and then you can connect to it, uh, over SSH, you know, with virtual visual, with Visual Studio Code, right? So, but it's just, it's a lot of steps to do that. Whereas with, uh, with uh, the um, the dev containers, you literally pull the repo down, dev container build, dev container open, and you're in. Yes, and the sirens the sirens have stopped. The downsides of it being summertime and being able to have the windows open, I suppose. Yeah, Jason and Jason. <laughs> well, I hope that was interesting. I hope it wasn't too confusing. Um, but yeah, there's a lot. So the the um, there's a couple resources. So containers.dev is the main one, and um, you've got your you know the reference and specification and everything for the, for building your .json file. Uh, and there's sample there's sample files in here as well. Um, you know, it's got a schema, so you can kind of build everything out. I almost prefer the. I know it was kind of we were joking about YAML earlier, but I actually kind of prefer the YAML file. It's a little clearer than. Than dealing with all the indenting and, and brackets, but uh, you know, there's a there's unfortunately a bunch of different competing standards for this, uh, for this kind of thing. Um, like I said, AWS Code Catalyst has a different one. Um, this one I think will work with GitHub Code Spaces as well. So, uh, will I keep using this after I finish my course? Uh, I absolutely will. Um, you know, I've I've actually suggested this at at my work. Um, because we have a bunch of different repositories and a bunch of different software modules that have different things for making dev environments. 
uh, locally. And, you know, some of it's uh, automated with make files. So you could just do like a make build and it you know, builds it. But a lot of it, you, you still have to install the software locally. Um, like we're running on Mac OS and like, so I'll have to, you know, brew install everything I need, make sure I've got the right versions of stuff. There's, you know, things get outdated. Um, you don't know if you're running a different version than you should. So this, this definitely comes in handy for, um, being able to standardize that local environment and share it, uh, between team members. And if a new person comes on the team, rather than having to spend a couple hours reading a, a readme in the repository and step-by-step step setting up the local environment just to start working, they can just do this instead. Thank you for listening to the Kitchener-Waterloo Linux User Group audio podcast. Our monthly meetings are free of charge and open to all, so please join us if you are around. We meet on the first non-holiday Monday of each month from 7 to 9 p.m. in Kitchener. Please visit kwlug.org for upcoming topics, for directions, and for additional meeting information. In addition to attending a meeting, you can participate in the KWLUG community by joining our email discussion list, by offering to present a topic, or just by spreading the word about this podcast. Thanks also to IndieServe Networks, Archive.org, and CCJ Clearline for hosting our website and multimedia files, to the Working Center for offering meeting space, and to the many people who participate in the KWLUG community. Until next time, goodbye world!